1: I suppose visitors who've taken the time to ride over from the City of London might think of the area that we're focusing on today as not much more than a sleepy garden village outside of London. But in among the sounds of agricultural animals lowing and the whirring of windmill sails and the cries of grocers at the stalls of the old market, other sounds can be heard the striking of pickaxe and shovel on ground. Yes, the sound of development and progress, punctuated by the occasional grisly explosion of a martyr's head popping in the churchyard. It might be rural, but it's far from idyllic here in Stratford. Hey baby, let me take you down, so we'll play some strange sights and the sound, you ain't never seen the We were in Stratford. Well, we were kind of above Stratford, really. We were on the Olympic site getting ready for the next phase of its opening, and we were in the ArcelorMittal Tower looking down on the east end. We're just outside Stratford Station today, and with me, Diane Burstein. She's a blue badge guide, which means she knows our onions, and she's going to give us a tour of the non-Olympic side of this town. Hi, Diane.
0: Hello. Nice to see you again. It's interesting that you've asked for the non-Olympic side of Stratford because Stratford is one of those places where before the Olympics, I wouldn't have really thought about doing a tour here necessarily, although there is a lot of interest because people, although they wanted to go to the East End that was just to the edge of the city of London, places like Spitalfields or Whitechapel. People were a little bit reluctant to come further afield in East London. And one of the good things about the Olympics is that it did get people interested in coming to this side of London. But now Stratford is really a town of two halves in a way because you've got behind the station where we have the Olympic Park and the area here in front of the station which has been populated for a long time and really grew up in the early part of the 19th century and in fact the oldest building that I'm going to show you today dates back to 1700 but there was a settlement here before that and there was a large abbey here, Stratford Langthorne Abbey that was here from the 13th century up until the time of the Reformation. So you did have a few people settling around the abbey but generally speaking it was land that was not populated until the amount of industry that came to the area grew and until the railways came here, which was back in 1839. So although we're standing in front of a very modern-looking station today that was rebuilt in the 1990s, that was when the Great Eastern Railway first built the station here back in 1839. 39. So it's very appropriate that we're standing here in front of a railway engine, which is named Robert. Robert was not actually active in this area. It was built in 1933 up in the north of England and was transferred to the Beckton. Gasworks, where it was on display on the old Beckton Gasworks site, but then later it was decided by the London Borough of Newham that they would display it here really to represent the railway history of Stratford because Stratford was very much a train spotters paradise throughout the later 19th century and into the early part of the 20th century. So we're going to head towards where the railway yards used to be and on the way we're going to be visiting Stratford's cultural quarter and the famous Theatre Royal Stratford East.
1: Well, off we go there. That's very interesting. I have an image in my mind then after the abbey was founded of hundreds and hundreds of years of not very much going on and then it's really all happened in the last slightly less than 200 years.
0: That's right. There were industries here. For example, going towards Bow, you had Bow porcelain that was made in the area and if we go back to the time of King Edward III, he sent the slaughterhouses out to this part of East London. So it became an area for more and more noxious industries. But really, it was the coming of the railways which would have been the impetus of the growth of this area. And to show how rural it used to be before it was built up, we're going to be walking later down a road called Windmill Lane. Well, there were a number of mills here, and also along the Olympic site not far away from here, we have the Bowback Rivers, and they were tributaries of the River Lee. So along those rivers, you would have had mills, and they were... ...usually grinding corn and producing bread. So you had the wood... ...that was used in the ovens to bake that bread... ...which was provided from Epping Forest... ...which wasn't too far away... ...and then the bread would be taken and sold in the city of London. So an area for noxious industries... ...but also an area for mills... ...and then you had marshy land all around... ...so it would have been quite a rural aspect... ...up until the early 19th century... ...and then we have the growth of this area and the adjoining areas of places like West Ham and East Ham.
1: I I really like the idea of one of the local uh, train stations as you get off on the the platform and the the sign says, Welcome to Bow, area for noxious industries. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're passing between the two Stratford shopping centres. Of course, uh, on our left, well, if you cross over the the bridge here, across the railways, you've got the brand-new shopping centre, uh, All Singing, All Dancing, Westfield. On the right, you have the somewhat more modest... By comparison, centre. I wonder how they're faring with the Westfield having landed right on their doorstep.
0: Well, I've just come through the older centre, which was built in the 1970s, and it's still pretty busy. And inside there, you have the market that used to be a street market out on the street, which when the new shopping centre was built in the 1970s, then those stallholders were driven inside. One of the things that I've noticed about that shopping centre that's changed quite a bit is that there are fewer food stalls than you would have found there a few years ago. Still quite a lot of fruit and vegetable stalls and very nice fruit and vegetables they are. But you would have had, for example, a stall selling fish and live eels and that seems to have disappeared. So it was a very different scene before this older shopping centre was built because along Angel Lane, where we'll be walking shortly, you had Market stalls all along there, and also market stalls all along Stratford Broadway. And they would have been selling absolutely everything. It was a traditional street market which had been around since the 19th century. So, fruit, vegetables, clothes, food, you name it it was there. And when a book was written about this area a couple of years ago, a book that I've got at home, the author was saying that actually there were only two stallholders who were there who had descendants who also had stalls. So you used to have this tradition of the stalls being passed down from father to son, but there aren't too many of those remaining today. So it would have been a very different scene. So in the same way that people, when Westfield was coming, were saying, oh dear, what's going to happen to the local businesses? Well, the market holders would have been saying the same thing when this shopping centre came along back in the 1970s. And it really did alter the streetscape in this part of town. And the Theatre Royal Stratford East, which we're going to be seeing in a moment, which dates back to 1884, was really the only older building on the side of the road of the 1970s shopping centre that remained. And that was very much thanks to a man called Jerry Raffles, who was the general manager of the theatre, who literally stood in front of the bulldozers to stop them from knocking down the theatre and managed to get a last-minute reprieve.
1: You can uh, only wonder at the size of construction that would have to arrive in the next phase of Stratford's development to make the Westfield people worry about the future of their retail. I should say in the background, as we've been crossing the road over onto the side of the street that's got the old shopping centre that you'll, you'll have been hearing in the background people on microphones and uh, I think they're selling religion.
0: That's right yes religion seems to be very popular here evangelical religion because on this side of the 1970s shopping centre and also later when we get it to Stratford Broadway you'll have people on megaphones who as you say are selling the idea of Religion, and that makes for a rather lively atmosphere on a Saturday. And this is one of the things that tour guides have to contend with when we're doing tours out on the streets. You never know when somebody's going to be a drilling a hole just where you want to speak to your group, or when somebody's going to be talking through a megaphone espousing religion.
1: Yeah, and yeah, you've you've got your problems, I've got mine, jackhammers right. and so. Forth. But exactly. uh, I, so I think I think there's a kinship on that front. But yes. uh, just lingering with that idea of religion. For a moment longer. As we came out of the station, we've got a lot of uh, besuited Jehovah's Witnesses yes. who are standing around with leaflets, which is their new. Uh, they're, they're not too intrusive, they sort of j- no. just uh, wait there and see if you're interested. Much more, uh, to my mind, aggressive, certainly assertive, uh, the, the preachers who are yelling at the top of their voices and maybe, as you say, shouting through megaphone. Even Though we're quite visibly recording something, we've got enough equipment with us to, to show that that's what we're up to. Somebody who I think was representing Islam was attempting to thrust flies into our hand as we walked. So, is aggressive the right word? I'm not sure.
0: Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't call it aggressive, particularly the people on the megaphones. In fact, sometimes I feel a little bit sorry for them because nobody's listening to them and they carry on. So I think they must be incredibly thick-skinned to do that, to stand there talking about something when everybody's passing you by and nobody's listening to you at all. I've never seen a crowd gather in front of any of these uh, preachers. but
1: You can usually not even make a word out, can you? Yes,
0: exactly. Sometimes you you can't. So I certainly don't find it particularly aggressive. And as you say, the uh, chap did try and thrust a leaflet in front of us, but uh, he didn't do anything more than that, so I don't I don't think I found it particularly
1: threatening. We've rounded the corner where uh, <laughs> we're on a street now with the attractive name Service Route Number Three. And as we cross over the street, well, uh, off in front of us, we can see green fields, meadows, the uh, gentle rise and fall of hills on the horizon.
0: In your imagination, yes. This is uh, erection of suites, one, two, and three bedroom apartments and penthouses, over 95% salt. So that's very much the other Stratford which you're going to find in the area around the Olympic site, all these new apartments that are being built and I think it really is a tale of two cities and another place that I guide sometimes where you see that is over in Woolwich now where you've got the old Royal Arsenal site which has been redeveloped as flats and you see two totally different groups of people coming out of the station at night, the ones who are heading towards the luxury apartments people who are working in the city, who are quite well-to-do, and then the people who live on the other side, who don't have so much money. And in the same way, to a certain extent, you feel that there are two Stratfords. It feels like there are two different areas. But I think you get that all over in London.
1: Well, yes, there's no doubt that there are plenty of new homes uh, soon to come on the market, assuming these projects get to completion and... Well, as far as you can see, really, it's just a a forest of the innards of buildings.
0: Yes, lots of construction going on. And it would have been a similar scene, but with a totally different type of building if you would have come here after the railway yards opened. Because in the 1840s, a man called George Hudson, who was known as the Railway King, he came to Stratford, he was based up in York, and he built an area that was known as Hudson's Town for the railway workers, and the people who tended to live there would have been the professionals who came to work on the railways, the engineers, for example, because... The railway site was an absolutely enormous site. So if you think where the Olympic Village is situated today, right the way up to where you'll find the Aquatic Centre on the Olympic Park, this was all railway land. And then also up at Temple Mill Lane, where today you've got the Spitalfields Fruit and Vegetable Market. That's where they relocated from Spitalfields. So that was railway marshalling yards. And then in this area, you had the people who made the engines, who repaired the engines, the people who printed the tickets that you would have purchased to travel on the trains, the assembling of the cutlery to go in the buffet cars of the trains, all this would have been done in this area. So for the skilled workers who were maybe coming to the area from other parts of the country, they had to house them. So Hudson's Town was built, named after this entrepreneur who financed the railways and then later on the name was changed to Stratford Newtown and the reason it was changed is because Mr Hudson ended up in prison for a few months. He was accused of embezzling the funds of the railway company so he was discredited and up in York they changed the name of the street that was named after him and you had this whole area of Stratford that was named after him and that name was changed as well. So you had uh, this new stratford area that was developing all because of the railways so we would have seen all this kind of construction in the 1840s 50s and 60s as well in exactly the part of town where you could see the new flats going up today
1: i should apologize as ever the weather is not a friend and it started out blustery today and the winds have whipped up such that now the Stratford denizens are hanging horizontally off the lampposts <laughs> like a an aviator's scarf in the wind. It's a bit windy. If
0: anything coming we can probably
1: Now we're approaching Theatre Square. Actually, the the theatre here is quite a well-kept secret, isn't it?
0: Well, it is although it wasn't a secret to me as a theatre-goer because I have to admit that the first time I came to Stratford as a North Londoner was to go to the Theatre Royal Stratford East. But Quite interestingly, when I first approached it, I didn't come this way above ground because I just crossed the road walked through the 1970s shopping centre and then there's a side entrance that brings you out just opposite the theatre here. So I didn't really get to know this area until I started coming here in my capacity as a guide. But I did know the theatre because this is the theatre that has been around... Since the year 1884, but was put on the wider theatrical map in 1952 and that was because of Joan Littlewood's Theatre Workshop coming here. In the 1880s it opened with a play called Richler about Cardinal Richler and apparently they had to halt the performance because the local audience was so badly behaved and rowdy and you know theatres had a reputation for attracting very badly behaved audiences going back to Shakespeare's time but even in the 19th century and I love the story that I tell to people when I go to a different part of London in Fulham where you had Oswald Stoll, the theatrical impresario, buying a piece of land and wanting to build a theatre. This was back in 1905 and they didn't give him permission to, partly because there was another one nearby but also because of the bad reputation of the audiences who would go to the type of variety theatre that he wanted to build. However, in the same year, the local authority had given permission for a football stadium, Chelsea's Stamford Bridge, to be built just next door. So that just tells you something about the reputation that people went to variety theatres had because in areas that were poorer parts of town, and this did become a very poor part of town with bad living conditions, people might be working long hours in the railways or in one of the factories and you went home to overcrowded living conditions that were insanitary, so you wanted to forget all about your troubles and woes and go and see a variety show, but if you didn't think it was up to standard, then you might boo and jeer, and I think we wasn't the sort of entertainment that locals here were looking for.
1: Well, uh, that's very interesting, though, because it sounds... uh, I I was imagining from what you told me about Hudson and then bringing all these different sub-industries into the town that the area would have been booming.
0: It was booming, yes, and the audiences uh, did come. But you still had, although you had employment, you still had people who were living in... Poorer living conditions, not everybody was living here in Hudson's town. There were people who uh, were living uh, and working in other places as well. So although it was a place of employment that people came to, they did have their problems as far as uh, sanitation, for example. There were cholera outbreaks in the area because of poor sanitation and the place did become very overcrowded. So, yes, there was uh, employment, but you also did have people who uh, were living in poor living conditions. So this was a place where you could come to escape. And there were several theatres and places of entertainment in the area. This wasn't the only one. And this one rather suffered because a few years after it was opened, they built another theatre called the Borough Theatre up the road, which was attracting the bigger name. They were getting people like Sir Herbert Beerbohm Tree and Sir Henry Irving. At who the who could and forget theater. Sir Herbert? Exactly. So uh, this theatre suffered, and it had its periods of closure, and all sorts of people kept buying and selling it and reviving it, but it never really worked until Joe Littlewood came along, and she had started her theatre workshop up in the north of England. But the critics didn't want to go to some of the places where the theatre workshop were performing. And she knew that if they were to get reviewed in the national press, they had to come and find somewhere in London that was a base that they wanted to come to a working-class area and bring their type of theatre to the masses. Can we stick a date on this? This was 1952. Uh Uh-huh. So... uh, They came down here, found this theatre that was being disused, managed to negotiate a lease on it and moved in. And at the time, the actors were living hand-to-mouth because she couldn't afford to pay people a lot. And a number of them were actually sleeping in the theatre. But they couldn't let the health and safety people know that and the people who gave them a licence to perform. So what used to happen is when an inspector turned up, they used to have an announcement, would Walter Plinge... Thank you. The cat Please come to rehearsal. And this fictitious Walter Plinge, he didn't exist. He was a little bit like Mr Sands at the railway stations. Everybody in the theatre knew that it was then time to go and pack away your sleeping bag and hide all evidence that you were living in your dressing room because the inspector might come upstairs. And the sort of actors who were performing here were people like Harry H. Corbett, who later made his name in Step and son, uh, George and Mildred's Brian Murphy. He performed here. People like Billy Whitelaw, actors... Who had working class accents whether they were from London or from Manchester and remember in the early 1950s this was a time where if you went to drama school and you had any sort of regional accent people were trying to eradicate that. I heard Sheila Hancock give a talk once where uh, she spoke about that and then of course once she started in her acting career she was called upon to play Cockney characters so this was a very different time in the theatre to what we had have today and Joan Littlewood's theatre workshop wanted to bring the local people to the theatre. Now they were incredibly successful here because the critics started to review their shows. They put on innovative plays A Taste of Honey, which has recently been revived at the National Theatre, was premiered at this theatre and was later made into a film. And one of the actors who was then just out of drama school, Murray Melvin, he is now the theatre's archivist here in The Guardian. Of their history. Oh, what a lovely war, and things ain't what they used to be, which have recently been revived at this very theatre. But they also did Shakespeare plays. Harry H. Corbett, who I mentioned, he. ...played in a lot of Shakespeare plays... ...Richard II was meant to be absolutely amazing... ...but once he was playing Steptoe's son... ...he was never going to be given a serious role ever again... ...and they premiered in this country... ...the plays of the Irish writer Brendan Behan... ...a young Richard Harris performed here... But although they were attracting the critics, they were also attracted to the middle-class theatre-goers. So people came here from other parts of London. But the plays that they were putting on here didn't manage to attract the locals. And Joan Littlewood was a little bit disillusioned about this in spite of her success. And she had great plans to open a fun palace. And there were various sites that were looked at. And one of the sites, funnily enough was now covered by the Olympic Stadium but she wasn't given planning permission and the idea of the fun palace would be a building away from a theatre where local people would come and participate in theatre workshops creating their own art and that never came to fruition and she was rather disillusioned about that. She was also rather disillusioned by the fact that her uh, longtime partner Jerry Raffles had died so she went off to live in France. Funnily enough Today, the theatre here does attract local audiences because later artistic directors decided to put on plays that would speak to the people who live in this area. So recent successes have really appealed to the multicultural audiences of today to people of all different ages and there's a very different atmosphere when you come in here. For example the last play that I saw in here they were advertising they had a tweet zone where you could sit and tweet about your theatrical experience during the play when of course normally if you switch on your phone you're being reprimanded by the staff. quite,
1: Quite often by the actors.
0: That's right. So what they're doing here, they're embracing their very very lively local audience and they want to participate in what's going on but they do acknowledge the past here so in this last year they've revived oh what a lovely war and things ain't what they used to be which is coming back in the next season
1: Well it's something that you touched on there of course very important to say about Stratford and it won't be evident through sound that this is a very mixed multicultural uh, part of the world or part of London I should say but has it always been so?
0: Well it has been for a long time now and that's for a number of reasons really. Of course uh, where you are here you're not very far away from the docks and into the docks you had people coming of every nationality. So you had sailors arriving from... uh China, from India, from Africa. So in many parts of East London, the first immigrants who arrived would have been single men who were working for the various shipping lines and who stayed and made their home, usually on places like the East India Dock Road, where they would stay in a sailor's hostel. But then later, they would establish themselves and they would move a little bit further out. Stratford itself is not really associated with one particular ethnic group so you have people coming to Stratford who come from all over the world so you wouldn't say oh yes everybody who comes here hails from Jamaica or from Trinidad or from uh, Bangladesh you have got quite a wide variety of people who uh, live in this area
1: we're crossing over the road now are we going over that bridge there
0: um, we'll walk a little way up the bridge. We're going to be walking up a slope here, and then we're going to uh, turn round into oh, well, Windmill Lane.
1: Just as you said, Windmill Lane, we have got a dose of wind there. Yes, the
0: wind. Yes, that's oh. right. So very appropriate that well, we could cross here now, and uh, we're going to see the railway tavern which is a Victorian pub and of course that was put there for all the railway workers. Now it's very sad because there was actually an early 19th century house along here which predated the building up of Hudson's town which later became Stratford New Town and sadly that was demolished very recently just a few years ago. Apparently somebody bought it and then knocked it down. So um, we tend to think of This period is a period where we preserve old buildings, but still you get old buildings disappearing. But the railway tavern has survived, which I think is rather nice because it's the one bit of the old history in this particular area because when we look across the road from here, we can see what was the athletes' village during the Olympics and, of course, as we speak, the flats there are being sold off or uh, rented now to become this new part of Stratford. But this is where you had the railway land. So this is where people would have been building engines. And in fact, they broke the record here for building a railway engine in just under 10 hours, which apparently was never broken. <laughs> yes. I think they had over 100 people working on it at the time. But uh, that was in the late... 19th century on this site and in a moment we'll come to a brick wall and there's a door <laughs> that, in the wall. Is and that, that was,
1: what you brought us to see?
0: No, that was one of the entrances where the railway workers would have come in and out and I was reading the reminiscences of a gentleman who used to live in the area and his father worked on the railways and he remembers waiting for his father to come out through the little door in the brick wall. So that's still there today. And then the railway tavern that we can see, that used to open very early in the morning between 6 o'clock and 8 o'clock for the railway workers who were coming off their shifts and apparently they didn't admit women in there so it would have been men only in the uh, tavern and uh, the railway tavern, it's wonderful that it's still going strong today with all the different changes and then the houses that you can see to the right of the tavern there's one with an advertisement for pine furniture at the back there these would have been these Victorian houses Houses that were part of the new town that was being built for the railway workers. But then on the other side of the road there, you could see a very tall block of post-war flats called Holden Point. It's sheltered accommodation for elderly people there today. And if you look at the top of Holden Point, you could see that there's a little grey structure. And when uh, the bid was first won for the Olympics to come to Stratford that was the one place where you could go and get an overall view of what was going on on the Olympic site as they cleared away all the buildings that were on the site and they used to take time-lapse pictures of what was happening every day and Sebastian Coe would take all his VIPs up there as well so that they could get a view. And it does seem to me very odd going on to the Olympic site today because there was so much security and walls all around it and only a few spots where you could get a viewpoint of the park from that it does seem very strange now just being able to walk onto it and walk around. But, of course, it wasn't just railway lands on that site. You had a whole industrial area giving employment to people. So you would have had, for example, the places where you would go to Yes a spare tyre for your car. There was an evangelical Christian church that was based there. There was a housing cooperative. There was student accommodation. You had lots of different industries. There was a cafe there where, for years, the lady who worked there had been supplying food to the railway workers but then didn't get the contract to supply people when it came to the Olympic Games. So when people say that it was just a wasteland, it was far from a wasteland And the railway lands, they were here right up until the early 1990s, still giving people employment. Not as many people as there were in the past, of course, because when they stopped making engines, they were still doing repairs there, and then they were using it for marshalling goods. So to say it was a complete wasteland was very wrong, because there were things going on there.
1: I wonder whether that's an element of spin from uh, people who... Perhaps are connected with the, the legacy of the Olympics or want to remember the, uh, the use of that site in a particular way.
0: I think definitely. Um, I think it is a case of perhaps intentionally misremembering. It depends on your viewpoint, though, because when I organised a tour when it was first announced that the Olympics were coming, a colleague and I hired a double-decker bus and we took people round the site to show them where the Olympics were going to be. And some people said, how fantastic that all this is going because it's not particularly attractive. But others took a different point of view and said... What a shame this is going, because every city needs an area like this. It's It may not be attractive, but it's giving employment to people and a lot of the businesses that were there were useful businesses. So it was two different points of view. But undoubtedly, the thing that is an improvement is that you get an access to those waterways, the Bowback Rivers, because on the other side of Stratford High Street, you've got the Channel Sea River, and that all got filled in as a path that you can walk along, but you don't really see any water there. Whereas here... The water had survived, but of course, with all the noxious industries, it all got very dirty and smelly and polluted, etc. And there are river paths there where people can walk and cycle, but they weren't being used. So it is quite nice that now you can go and use those waterways and enjoy that. And in the area where the Olympic Park is more rural, I suppose, away from the Westfield Shopping Centre, so when you get up to the north side of the park, past the velodrome... you do get this sense of the countryside, which, of course, you would have had years ago.
1: Well, that ties us in very nicely from the street we're on right now, which is Windmill Lane. And, well, on the, the one side we can see terraced houses. Uh, there's a, a large stack of mattresses being disassembled by uh, people with... Uh, probably hobbyists with an interest in mattresses. <laughs> on the other side, there are uh, smaller muse terraces. Over the top of them we can see the tower block there. It's difficult to imagine windmills here. Difficult to imagine agriculture.
0: It is very difficult to imagine but that's London all over. I mean let's face it Soho was hunting fields and who can imagine hunting fields when you go to Soho today. So it is very difficult to imagine all of that but all of London really. When you think of London, London was the city of London and if you said I live in London up until the 1660s you probably lived right in the centre in the city and there were suburbs that grew up just outside the city walls and across the river you had Southwark, which was a Roman suburb. But when you went west, it was all fields, all the areas of Kensington and Fulham, that was Market Gardens and you had Market Gardens in East London here as well. So although it's difficult for us to imagine, that's the way it was. It was a city of uh, many green fields the minute you got away from the centre. And well-to-do people came to live here, So, as we go towards Stratford Broadway, we're going to be seeing an obelisk to a gentleman called Samuel Gurney, who lived here. He was from the wealthy Quaker banking family of the Gurneys. Now, people like him, they came here in the 18th and early 19th century before Stratford became built up and built themselves nice houses. And West Ham Park, which is a little way out of our walking area today, but not too far away from here. If you got on a bus, you'd be there in about 10 minutes from here. That's an absolutely beautiful... Beautiful park where the City of London's gardeners do all their gardening and their training there because it's owned by the city today. Well, that at one time was the private gardens of a big house which was lived in by this gentleman Samuel Gurney. So you had a few of these large houses in the area Ham House and also Upton House and along the road that led up towards Forest Gate which is named after one of the gates into Epping Forest you've got some rather large Victorian houses where well-to-do people lived but the earlier settlers, the gentlemen like Hall the banker uh, Gurney the banker who came here back in the late 18th century they would have come here because of the rural aspect his predecessor was a man called John Fothergill who was a doctor and botanist and people would come bringing him exotic plants from overseas which had healing powers but also which were attractive and he created this fantastic botanical garden and that was in this area as well so uh, when it was rural it had a great attraction because, of course, it wasn't too far away from the city of London. So if you had your banking interests in the city, then you didn't have too far to travel.
1: Well, we've got a little way to travel, and we're going to uh, throw a word from our sponsor in your direction, listener, and we're going to travel at high speed while that's going on, and we'll meet you further into Stratford.
0: Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk Londonist and click through.
1: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin oh, Wolf, and we are in Stratford, and we've just traversed Morning Lane and we've come around the corner past the Carton Horses Public House, an old Victorian public house there, the birthplace of Iron Maiden, no less. And my guest, Diane Bernstein, has brought me down the street here to show me a billboard for Specsavers.
0: (laughs) No, we're actually going to look across the road at... This red terracotta and brick building, which today is a medical centre, actually, so you'd go there to the doctor. But in 1913, when this was built, it was the Grove Cinema. Now, the cinema no longer exists behind here, but this would have been the entrance where you went in, paid your money, bought a ticket, and then you would have walked through to the cinema behind. And, of course, this was the days before talking pictures, So, up until 1929, it would have been silent movies inside here. And it carried on as a cinema, closing for a while in the 1930s, then opening again, and it struggled on to the 1940s as a cinema. Then it was used as a billiard hall for a while, then used as a factory for a while, and now it is a doctor's surgery. So, another place of entertainment.
1: It's got a wonderful look to it. Just before the First World War, it's got that very fussy imperial style.
0: Yes, it's lovely. It's got uh, swags of flowers... Up above the entrance and garlands there. And as I mentioned, red brick and also uh, terracotta style designs, which would have been the design of the period. But you wouldn't immediately say, looking at it, this was a cinema, not quite as grandiose as what came later in the 1920s and
1: 30s. No, quite right. You might think of a drill hall or something That's like that. That's
0: right. Yes, yes, I think so. I would think I, if I was asked to guess, I might even say an old post office building. You know, when you see some of those sorting office buildings, but where you see the front door and that comes forward, you can imagine the little bay window, the kiosk where you would have paid your money and bought your tickets there.
1: Kind of American style.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: So we're heading down now, which street are we on now?
0: Now, we're heading down, this road is called The Grove here, and we're heading back into Stratford Broadway, so the main thoroughfare of Stratford, but on the other side of that 1970s shopping centre, So this was actually the centre of the town and this is where you have Stratford's Town Hall which was West Ham Town Hall because this was in the borough of West Ham. In fact if you look at some of the older street signs, uh, we may see one later on that still has the words Borough of West Ham in the 1960s, West Ham and East Ham got together to create the borough of Newham or Newham as it is today and the London Borough's Still has its old town hall, but uh, the main town hall today is in East Ham, so this is being used for receptions, weddings, they have a wonderful assembly hall in there and we will also see the church. And I'm going to take you across the road just to show you an unusual post box because uh, there aren't too many of these around, so we're uh, just crossing the road uh, now.
1: It's not that one over there, is it?
0: It is that one over well, there, Well, OK, I've got,
1: I've got to say, we're seeing the reverse side of it at the moment, and it looks very ordinary indeed.
0: It is a very ordinary uh, post box, but when we look round to the other side and you have a look at the lettering, you'll see what is unusual, what is quite rare about it. Of course, post boxes only started appearing on the streets during the reign of Queen Victoria, and the idea of the post box came from a very famous author, do you oh, know who yes. he was?
1: Um, uh, uh, Anthony,
0: Trollope. Oh, Anthony uh, Trollope, his day job was working at the post office, so before he went off to work at the post office he'd be writing the latest chapter of Barchester Chronicles, but here it is, we have arrived at our unusual postbox here and uh, do have a look at the initials here.
1: Oh, well, instantly I can tell that this uh, postbox comes from the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. There's no question about that in my mind.
0: (laughs) That's right, no, there wasn't. I can
1: can tell because it's (laughs) E-R.
0: It's E-R, but the E is actually for Edward. But if you look at the number, we have Edward VIII. Now, of course, Edward VIII was only king for a very short time. He didn't have a coronation and he then abdicated to marry the woman he loved, Mrs. Wallace Simpson. So as a result, there were not many post boxes around with his initials on it. In fact, there are only 15 on the streets of London and this is one of them. I haven't gone around looking for all of them. I'm not that much of an anorak, but I was told this by uh, a uh, society who were interested in the preservation of
1: old post boxes. And who you've just uh, alienated en masse.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. I I don't think so. I'm sure they're absolutely fascinated uh, by that. So now we're heading up towards the church for the area. You could see the church tower in the uh, distance.
1: This is a very conspicuous church, isn't it, right on an island of its own there?
0: It is, so it has a very central place. And it was built in the 1830s, and at that time the church had a very central role to play in society. In fact, in Victorian times, if you were building up a new district of London, then you would build the church first to attract people here. Now, there were older churches in the area. West Ham's Parish Church, which had a history going back to uh, medieval times. So although the area wasn't highly populated, there were enough people spread around to go to a church. But you would have to walk miles to your nearest church. So once the area started being built up, of course they needed a new church, and it was built here in central Stratford. The architect was a gentleman called Edward Blore and he's best known for working on Buckingham Palace when Queen Victoria moved in because of course she had a large family, nine children so she needed the place extended so he came in to extend the work of other architects
1: Uh, Stratford uh Stratford, of course, famous for having ice cream bands with the worst uh, musical tones ever.
0: (laughs) Yes. So before we get to uh, the church, though, we're coming to an area. I told you this road was called The Grove. And it's rather sad because where we now see there's a sculpture here, which is a peace sculpture that was put here in 1984 by... uh, a sculptor called Derek Richardson. It was commissioned by the local authority, and it looks like three men holding up a very large football, but in fact it's supposed to represent the world, the globe. You could just about see Africa poking out underneath here. And we've also got a large supermarket here, an estate agent, and the local library here. And these buildings were put here around the year 2000. But before all these were here, you would have had a nice terrace of Victorian houses with large front gardens. And one of the people who lived in one of those houses was a man who went Trollope, in Trollope. to be. It was Anthony Trollope. Trollope? No, no, Anthony Trollope was further into town. He was in Marylebone and Bloomsbury. Wasn't here. I'm never going to get
1: over my no, Trollope defeat. You know. This that was
0: bit. this was uh, <laughs> this was Gerard Manley Hopkins, the uh, was poet, it? was here. And uh, we'll see some lines from one of his uh, poems because there's a little memorial to him. And his parents were very much involved with the new church. They gave money towards the building of St John's Church in the centre of Stratford. But later Gerard Menley Hopkins converted to Catholicism. He uh, had been educated in a Jesuit uh, school And uh, he was living here as a child until he was eight years old when he went off to Hampstead. But Stratford, they still claim him as their own son, so we'll see a little memorial to him. And the other memorial that we're going to see is of a lesser-known person, Edith Kerrison. And she was a local dignitary. She became a councillor on West Ham Council in 1917, which was before women got the vote and before women were allowed to sit in parliament so women could be local councillors so she was one of the first women to become a local councillor but she was also a nurse she worked in a hospital down at the royal albert dock and she was involved with the running of children's nurseries
1: what was it about her that allowed her to uh, come forward in in that remarkable way
0: Well, it was the early 1900s. Women could train as nurses in those days, and she was very interested in improving the lot of people who lived in this area because, as I've said before, although there was employment, there were a lot of social uh, problems. So children's nurseries would have been important because often poor families felt they couldn't afford to send their children to nurseries. Often nursery education for very small children was private, so to have affordable children's nurses nurseries. This was quite a big thing. And also she came forward, she wanted to be involved in local politics. Of course 1917, this was the time of the suffragettes. So there were a lot of women who were bright, intelligent women. They wanted to do something. They wanted to be useful. They didn't just want to uh, sit at home. And so to become involved in local politics, because women could be involved in local politics, this was really a step on the road to women becoming involved in uh, national politics, so that was very
1: important. Can you you remind me of this woman's name again? Edith Kerrison. Edith Kerrison, Okay. Um, The two things, number one, we should know this woman's name, and uh, I'm uh, rather ashamed that it's not more widely known, uh, or it could just be my ignorance, of course. But uh, secondly, I think we need another Edith Carrison uh, just about now. What I understand about childcare, certainly in London at this point in time, is that it's completely unaffordable and it's causing a major crisis. So maybe if there's uh, somebody with her sort of spirit, maybe it's uh, time for another Edith Carrison to step forward.
0: Oh yes, and there were a lot of very spirited women uh, around in this era. And uh, at the moment, there's an East London Suffragettes Festival going on that uh, celebrates the work of people like Sylvia Pankhurst in East London and some of the different women who she worked with in the local area and uh, one of the famous names associated with the area just up the road from here is George Lansbury in Bow and of course although he was male he was very much in favour of women having a say in politics and his daughter-in-law Minnie Lansbury who died at a very young age after spending time in prison for refusing along with the other poplar councillors to Set a rate. Um, she was somebody who was very much involved in uh, politics in this same sort of period. So you had a lot of these very uh, strong female local councillors who in a way are unsung heroines. You hear about the Pankhurst but you don't hear about some of the others who were involved in local politics in those days. So it's nice that Edith Kerrison has a memorial here, and she's just across the way from Gerard Manley Hopkins' memorial, and they are outside the main library here, which also contains the local archive. So if you want to find out more about the history of the London Borough of Newham, then this is the place to come. On the Manly Hopkins uh, Memorial here, we've got some lines from The Wreck of the Deutschland, which was one of his well-known poems. But like so many poets, he wasn't very famous in his own lifetime. It was after he died that a lot of his work was published. And when this was unveiled, Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet, he came to unveil this
1: memorial. Loathed for a love men knew in them, bound by the land of their birth, Rhine refused them, Thames would ruin them, surf, snow, river and earth, gnashed, but thou art above, thou Orion of light.
0: And it's referring to nuns who died in this shipwreck, so it was a true story about a group of nuns from Germany, so that's why it's saying uh, banned by the land of their birth, loathed for a love, men uh, knew in them. So uh, those are the people he's referring to. So we're coming up to the church that I mentioned. Uh, Before we look at that, I promised that I would show you the oldest property in Stratford, so well, you 're
1: gesturing right in the corner direction corner of the nandos that can 't be right
0: no it 's not it 's not the beautiful nandos on the left no it 's a, a building that was built in seventeen hundred and it 's the old Dispensary, And what's rather a shame about the old dispensary is that it seems to be empty and disused at the moment, which for the oldest building in this immediate area, you really feel that it's being rather neglected and they should be doing something with it. It's uh, owned by the local authority, I uh, believe. They were certainly using it in the run-up to the Olympics to promote Newham's involvement with the Olympics. But the reason it's called the Old Dispensary is because in the mid-19th century, there was a local Dr William Elliott who was here, and he was dispensing medicine in the days before the National Health Service, long before the National Health Service, to people who couldn't otherwise afford it, so you would come here for your pills and your inoculations, and I mentioned there was cholera in the area, Uh, you had all the contagious diseases like smallpox, and diphtheria. So you could see it's along a road called the Romford Road. It's very attractive. You could see white weatherboarding on the outside, uh, green paint around the door and the window panes. So very, very different to any other buildings that we've seen this afternoon. So it really does look. Uh, like something from another era.
1: It looks like it belongs in New England.
0: That's right, yes, the white weatherboarding. There's only a few buildings you see like this near the centre of London. There's one in Mayfair as well, so 1700. So I am hoping they'll do something with it. They were talking at one time to turn it into a heritage centre. I don't suppose there's any money around for things like that at the moment, but uh, this area used to have a heritage centre which was based in what is now part of the University of East London in a building uh, going further east to here. And that's now all in storage. And about ten years ago they were talking about moving it into the old dispensary and it would be great because so much has gone from this area if there was a museum here where people could come and learn about the areas past.
1: Well yes that's something that's been striking me as we've been talking that the wealth of knowledge you're carrying about in your head could find a more permanent physical form somewhere as well
0: Definitely. Uh, something that was very rare um, was the Beau Porcelain I mentioned which was a little bit further west from here, but still produced here in the Stratford area, and that was only here for a few years in the mid-18th century, so if it turns up on the Antiques Roadshow or other programmes, then uh, the antique valuers get very, very excited, so if they had things like that on display, and there's just so much that you could have, there were so many archaeological finds that they found on the Olympic Park, going back to prehistoric times, So it would be great if some of the things that they found, some of the old industrial archaeology, maybe uh, some of those tickets that were printed or cutlery that was assembled on the railway yards, if that was displayed here, that would be fantastic. And also some of the area's theatrical history, which uh, has now gone.
1: Well, we've headed inside the churchyard now and we're moving across the green space in the lee of the church always makes me very sad to see gravestones with the writing disappearing who knows whether that's the last remaining evidence of someone that we're watching fade away and we turn the corner and to the front of the church is quite a dramatic piece of memorial work it reminds me reminds me a little bit of something that you find in Victoria Park very ornate at the upper part reminds one of a church steeple. further down there's, well, it it almost could be uh, Tudor stonework uh, certainly in design if not in uh, the period of manufacture, very ornate columns and then further down uh, we can see a great deal of text that's been chiselled into this piece and Well, what is it we're looking at?
0: It's the Martyrs Memorial. It is Victorian, and it was the idea of a vicar of the church here, because we're now standing in front of St John's Church... But it commemorates something that happened in 1556 during the reign of Queen Mary I, the eldest daughter of Henry VIII. And of course she was a Catholic, she was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, so she was wanting to take the country back to Catholicism. And you had all these people who had become Protestants, particularly during the reign of her brother Edward VI. So um, this was an area called Stratford Green, which would have been a very large village green and would have stretched all the way up to the old dispensary and further that we saw. So this was a central point for these people to be burnt at the stake because at least 13 people, in fact there are memorials here to 18 people, you've got 13 names on one side including two women and then round on the other side some additional names of people who were martyred elsewhere in the Fairfields of Bow, where Fairfield Crescent is, just over the Bow Bridge. And the 13 people were brought here from Newgate Jail and burnt at the stake for their Protestant beliefs. And if you look at the memorial, you will see above where it says erected AD 1878, there is a relief here and it shows people being burnt at the stake apparently they tethered the men and the women were allowed to stand free and if your friends wanted to do you a favour they would bring along gunpowder to tie around your neck so that that would be ignited by the flames and that would dispatch you quickly so that you didn't have a slow death and of course all this would have been done in front of a large crowd thousands of people would have gathered to watch these martyrdoms. So this is a rather sad memorial to something that happened in this area back in the 1550s. And martyrdoms, executions, beheaded and burnings never took place in the centre of London, always on the outskirts. So that's why they were imprisoned in Newgate Jail, which was where the old Bailey stands in the city of London, but they were brought out here.
1: All the way out to Stratford.
0: That's right. So it's a rather sad bit of the area's history. On a more positive note though, because it's nice to finish on a positive note, oh, isn't I'm it?
1: Glad t- also, glad you've made that choice. Also
0: in this area, I mentioned the town hall, which we could see diagonally across the road, which was built in the 1860s. Very grand building. And as I say, still used for uh, occasions like weddings. And in that town hall in eighteen ninety two, Keir Hardy, who became the first Labor Member of Parliament, he was an independent socialist then, and he made one of his early speeches there at the town hall. And socialism was very strong here. The London Cooperative Movement started off here in Stratford with a group of railwaymen getting together in 1861 to buy goods cooperatively. So uh, it was a hotbed of socialism at one time and I suppose you could say it still is with the uh, majority of uh, the council being Labour. Also, we have a tavern across the road, the King Edward Seventh, locally known as the King Eddie. And uh, that is early 19th century, although some of the uh, building goes back to the 18th century. Lots of pubs along here because this was a major thoroughfare into the city of London. But that wasn't always called the King Edward VII. It, at one time, was called the King of... Prussia, and they had to change the name during the First World War of course because in the same way that our royal family had to change their name from a German name from Saxe-Coburg to Windsor it wasn't really good for any business to be associated with Germany so that's when uh, they changed the name of the pub so you've got several pubs to visit as you uh, travel along here today and if you travel up Far east from here, you come eventually to a building which is now called the Rex. It was turned into the Rex Cinema in the 1930s. But if you look up above, and they always say look up above on a building in London to see what it used to be, you will see the words...
1: Anthony Trollope.
0: Not Anthony Trollope. Borough Theatre and a picture of uh, Mozart there and uh, that is there Uh, rather I said Mozart sorry I'm thinking of the wrong uh, musician Beethoven there and he's scowling down at all the traffic that is going past so quickly here and this was the Borough Theatre designed by Frank Matcham who designed the London Palladium the London Coliseum so many other theatres and this was that theatre I mentioned earlier where you would have had Herbert Beerbohm. Sir Henry Irving all the famous actors of the day performing their high quality entertainment and then it became a cinema and more recently it's been a venue for uh, live rock music so entertainment has continued there up until recent years and uh, Travelling on a little bit further down, you will see a view in the distance of a building that looks a little bit like a cathedral. People say, was it a church? Was it a cathedral? Was it a school? And that was the Abbey Mills Pumping Station or the Cathedral of Sewage as it was known locally. And it just shows how when the Victorians built something even if it was something as utilitarian as a pumping station for sewage, they wanted to make it look beautiful. And so it does. It could be mistaken for a large railway station. And it was built in the 1860s by the engineer Sir Joseph Bazalgette and an architect called Charles Driver. And That was another one of the reasons why people did not want to come to Stratford in the past. It was another of those noxious things, along with all the noxious industries. So Stratford is an area that is on the change all the time. It's always moving on, and there's been a lot of changes in recent years. But if you look very carefully, you will find some little treasures from the past. So do come and explore Stratford.
1: What a catalogue of reinvention we've just touched on there and uh, what a powerhouse of a guide we've had to show us around, Diane Burstyn. Thank in. you. Thank you. Thanks um, very much. We, we, should, uh, we should find out where people can find out more. And, and The one thing that struck me earlier on was that uh, you seem to be an expert on every part of London.
0: I do. I do tours all over London. So, um, if you want to have a look at my website, it is secretlondonwalks.co.uk You can email me, Diane, D-I-A-N-E, at secretlondonwalks.co.uk. You can follow me on Twitter, at guide, Diane. Or if you want to use the oldie telephone, you can ring me on 0208 445 0159. These tours aren't just for tourists. I run a programme which is aimed at the public. Lots of British people uh, come along, lots of Londoners. So, not just overseas visitors. So, if you email me or phone me, leave your details and I will send you my latest mailing which has details of Various walks and visits.
1: Well, that's absolutely fantastic. Thanks for taking the time today, Diane Burstein. Thank You're you.
0: welcome.
1: And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Diane Burstein. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. When you leave this what can
0: you take with you? The man said, what a
1: his soul? Tired of ads
0: barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music, where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.